one thing that is very original series about this episode is that they all have a nice drink at the end. Yes. That is pure Star Trek. They're boozing it up like the original series. Cocktail hour on the ship. Exactly. In the captain's quarters. That's the way it should be done. Who wants a warm martini? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mark Farinas, a professional illustrator and animator, and I'm a total jerk. And I'm Ryan Thomas-Riddle, award-winning journalist and screenwriter, and I, too, am a jerk. And together we crew a ship full of jerks, a podcast about sci-fi and pop culture. Today we beam down for Aurora's first away mission as we continue our countdown to Strange New World Season 2. Then we travel 154 years into the near future to take a look at Gene Roddenberry's Genesis 2. And finally, we'll tell you what we're fanning over. Today we're talking about the second episode of Strange New Worlds. Uh, this one is called Children of the Comet. When a comet covered in mysterious technology threatens a planet of villagers, the Enterprise swoops in to change its course. They're thwarted by a ship of alien priests who worship the comet and demand the planet be left to its fate. Now, this was a second home run for the series, but it's not without its flaws. The story is pretty straightforward. A planet is in peril, and there's no debate that Pike and crew have to save it. Much of the drama stems from how they're going to do it. Both prongs of the solution are clever and sensible. I love that Uhura immediately gets to shine again on this show. They tap into not just her linguistic abilities, but also her musical ones. It would have been nice, like on the old show, if Gooding would have been given a few minutes to sing at Pike's dinner party that starts off the episode instead of humming a few bars, but we still get an introduction to her abilities that feel natural. I've been waiting for an episode like Children of the Comet since I first saw who are on screen. It took 55 years to finally have an entire episode sent around her, Mark. That's about damn time. As I mentioned last week, Uhura is among my favorite Star Trek characters. And I'm a great fan of Michelle Nichols, who we both have had the pleasure of meeting before her death. And I'm grateful that I got a chance to tell her how she was my heroine and what her character meant to me. And Mark, you mentioned them leaning into both her musical and linguistic capabilities, which I liked. In TOS, Uhura was little more than a radio operator. She only left the ship twice and only took command once in the animated series. And other than her first name, which as recent as the reboot films finally spoken into canon, we know very little about her. At least TOS did showcase her to be a capable officer and technician. But here we get her character, not solely her function on the ship. And it builds on Uhura being a skilled linguist and musician, as you pointed out, Mark. Both help her solve the linguistic mystery before them and save the day. It fixes that scene in the undiscovered country where Hora doesn't speak Klingon, the language of the enemy, all for a cheesy comedic scene, a scene Michelle rightfully fought against. But here we get more of her background. Uhura, like many modern characters, now has a traumatic backstory, losing both her parents in a shell accident. What feels the most naturalistic about Uhura's new backstory is Uhura wondering if Starfleet is where she belongs. And who of us at her age knows for certain where we belong, much less in 10 years, as Pike asked. I felt a little bit differently about Uhura's backstory. 
This is going to be the second episode in a row where we have to hear about a character losing their whole family to tragedy. Uh, it was La'an last week. You know, it's a bit much. And I wonder if the writers understand that dead family is not the best tragedy. Living family is. Just look at Riker, Spock, or Troy. <laughs> and we're also getting the second character after Pike who doesn't really want to be here. How much more of this crew is being dragged kicking and screaming into the greatest human adventure there is? What is wrong with all of them? I didn't mind it so much. I, I, I just, I like that questioning of whether this is where I belong. I, I do agree that it's a little back-to-back -back because Uhura now has both the tragic backstory that Lon has mixed in with Pike's reluctance to be there in one episode. Yeah. Shame on Spock for being so judgmental with her, though. Of anyone on the ship, Spock should be the one who could easily relate to her self-doubt. For me, he seems unnecessarily cruel, even for Spock. But I do like his attempt at a pep talk later on to Uhura, and him asking for feedback was uh, hella cute. Spock is definitely the cute character of the series, I think. And, um, you know, between him sort of grabbing his ears and screaming and going, that's better, in the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, the he, grogu he, of strange new worlds i think so and uh you know speaking of spock it was nice to see him back in a shuttle again yes. that's kind of his natural habitat he's always piloting a shuttle somewhere whether it's uh was galileo 7 or immunity syndrome he's kind of the guy that you send out to look at the thing a little closer yes and he's always telling us that the area of penetration will no doubt be sensitive oh <laughs> But speaking of conflict for the sake of conflict, Sam is unnecessarily assholic in this. I liken it to Bones having a baby with Bill Paxton's character from Aliens, something that becomes more obvious in the crew's encounter with the Gorn later in the season. Game over, man! Game <laughs> over! Oh, and he acts like one of the stupid scientists in Prometheus. He's just touching shit without investigating it first. Bro, you have a tricorder for a reason. Uh, he's another one of those characters that we know the fate of. He's a dead man walking. So they can do anything they want to him right now. And we know he's going to survive it because he has to. And, you know, I really thought after this episode that this was going to be a running joke, like killing Kenny. <laughs> that they would just zap this guy week after week and we would go, eh, it's all right, because, you know, we know he lives. <laughs> you killed Sam! <laughs> but it is sort of another thing in these redundant characters where also with Pike, we know he can't die. Nothing can happen to this guy because we know what's going to happen to him. Yeah. And so Sam Kirk shares that same kind of thing where it's like, mm, we don't have to care too much. About yeah, they the have plot armor. This guy's survival because he's going to make it. Yeah, it's plot armor or plot shields, whichever way you want to think about it. Okay, well, speaking of Sam, was it just me or was Pike flirting with him about the mustache? I think he was flirting, although you'd think Spock would be more interested in Sam since he's the brother of his eventual space husband. Not saying Spock has a type, but I'm saying Spock has a type. The other gripe that I have is the ending, where it's revealed that the crazy priest aliens were right, and everything the Enterprise did to water the planet was foretold. 
it's just too spiritual and again speaks to both of our disdain for the overused trope of destiny which Roddenberry era Trek was entirely free of yeah I'm I still don't like the destiny stuff as well I get what they're going for in this episode it's trying to explore predestination through theme and character in this case the shepherd's preordained comment to Pike's fate and even to Uhura's ultimate choice, Starfleet or not. And in that theme, only Uhura seems to have an actual choice before her. The rest are resolute in being locked into a prognosticated future. Yeah, it gets into the fact that we know a lot of what's going to happen. It's, I guess, the problem with all prequels is that you know where everybody's going to wind up and i wonder if they're critiquing themselves here by saying (laughs) everything is known somebody out there knows what's going to happen to all of you you know the bravest thing that they could do is just say like yep pike avoided that destiny and now we've created a new timeline well we'll, we're we are going to talk about that soon enough yes yes we are the one thing that i did really like about this episode were how the characters circumvented the Prime Directive. They still helped prevent the Common from slamming into the planet without revealing themselves to the local population. If this was TNG, Picard would argue that the Common was part of the planet's evolution, and they couldn't interfere to help when clearly they could. Pen pals, anyone? Yeah, you absolutely can't help but compare this outing to the two episodes of Next Generation that deal with similar subject matter. And do it incredibly badly. One is, like you said, Pen Pals. The other one is Homeward, which is just a dreadful seventh season tragedy. It's awful. It's awful. (laughs) It's awful. You know, and both of these episodes, the crew argue fecklessly uh, over whether they should save a species that's about to meet its end. Because something, something prime directive. Uh, It's just ludicrous that... (laughs) The Prime Directive would apply to any species that's about to get wiped out. How does interfering with their development matter if they're all going to be dead? In Pen Pal's case, they just have to tweak some volcano and no one's the wiser. But Homeward is trickier because you have to move these people off the planet entirely to save them. But really, who cares how you screw them up at that point? They could have beamed them all up and integrated them in with the Federation. It just wouldn't matter, you know? Anything would be better than death. I'm glad the Children of the Comet doesn't introduce this fake paternalistic moralizing. Yeah, those are two episodes of TNG that I just cannot stand. And that the argument that they have in Picard's uh, quarters and pen pals is just, well, they're going to die anyway. So we should just let them die because I'm directive. (laughs) And you're like, why? When you can do something, it's like, Picard couldn't be bothered in that episode. He just couldn't be bothered. It's it's like uh, liberal homeowners discussing homelessness. Yes, yes, it's exactly like that. Whatever. They want to be like that. Just get them off my doorstep. I don't want to see this anymore. I just want to walk to Whole Foods in peace. <laughs> but shit, Homeward. Homeward has like... That sequence where they bring the kid on board and he sees some technology and then he kills himself. And then Picard is all like, womp, 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 see what happens? And you just go, what? 
Who cares if half of them kill themselves? They're all going to die. Yeah, yeah, but that kid who saw the future, you know, why wasn't Troy helping him through it and processing what he was seeing? That's sort of her role on the ship. Because it's a stupid seventh season episode, right? Right. That's why. Right, right. And and Troy was too busy in a romance with Worf. Yes, they were smearing chocolate all over each other. <laughs> Romancing the bathlet. <laughs> so if I recall... Initially, there was a controversy over the size of Pike's quarters when this episode aired. Personally, I get people who think this ship is way too spacious compared to the original Enterprise. I don't think it's a matter of budget, but of the atmosphere you want to create. The original Enterprise was like a World War II carrier. It was cramped and dense. Long-term space travel felt relatively new and kind of unpleasant. It's not until the next generation that you get that space travel is so commonplace now. You can finally afford luxury. Strange New Worlds feels more like next generation than the original series in that respect. Kirk sure got screwed in his cabin assignment just five years later. It's like, oh, you know, we had to downsize. We needed more space for, I don't know medical supplies or whatever. Uh... <laughs> well, they cut 500 feet off the whole ship. <laughs> you know, I, Pike's quarters doesn't bug me that much, only because I, I have the ability to separate this show as its own thing and not necessarily feeding in the into the original series as we know it. That's kind of like my MO with a lot of these shows, so that I don't get caught up in that. I just take it as just, like you said, atmosphere- for the show and some of the admiral cabins on carriers or captain's cabins in the carriers are like that there are three different rooms there's a conference a living area and then the actual bedroom i don't have a problem with it canon wise i mean canon you know whatever it just doesn't matter <laughs> to me i can just i can just erase all of this if i want to i can compartmentalize yeah. uh all i really mean is that yeah it depends on what kind of show you want to create. The original show was like, hey, we're trapped in this tin can flying into the unknown. It rattles, it shakes. Yeah, it's not top of the line. Yeah, this new show is, you know, another kind of very spacious luxury ship, really. Yeah. And it is a different feel. I don't know. It's up to it's up to the viewer to decide which one they prefer. I right. like the luxury feel in in Next Generation because I think it's earned. I might like it less in Strange New Worlds because if this is the past, certainly things should be a little less comfortable. Yes. And that was also an argument that the writing staff had on the first season of Enterprise, that they thought that the ship should be like falling apart. The technology shouldn't work and more people should be dying because it's just <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> yeah. That would have made sense. I have no idea how it actually turned out, but... <laughs> that makes sense. Today's second segment revolves around a 1973 film we discussed briefly last week. It's the pilot to a Roddenberry series not picked up called Genesis 2. The plot revolves around NASA scientist Dylan Hunt, played by a mustached Alex Cord, who gets trapped in a hibernative state for over a hundred years. When he wakes up, he finds himself in a post-nuclear holocaust world run by two factions, the pacifist Pax 
and the slave-driving Turanians. Hunt has to choose who he'll side with as the two battle for influence over this new Eden. Gene Roddenberry made four failed attempts at making a TV series after Star Trek in the mid-70s. Of all of them, this one is my favorite. I've written about it before for trekmovie.com, and I never get tired of revisiting it. It's a complete hot mess of a film, and that includes the confusing title. Genesis 2 refers to the rebirth of the world in a second instance of the biblical creation. But when you put a 2 after your title, you can't help but think this is a sequel to something. Where's Genesis 1? <laughs> I like to think of this one as the beginning of the Roddenberry trope of a man frozen and awakened in a far, unrecognizable future. And funny enough, they're all named Dylan Hunt. Only two of the Dylan Hunt actors is worth discussing. Alex Gord here and John Saxon later. The third one, the less said about him, the better. <laughs> but Alex Cord was the first Dylan Hunt. Yeah, this is a film that has a lot of style, interesting concepts, and frankly, heart. I see it as a prequel to the original Star Trek, and I think Roddenberry did too, at least by the time he wrote the motion picture novelization, which has a couple of references to concepts in Genesis 2. The first is the show's prime method of transportation, which is this thing called the sub-shuttle, which is a network of underground trains that go everywhere in the world. They're connected to every continent in the world. Admiral Kirk in the TMP novelization takes one from Europe to Los Angeles. There's also talk of most people living beneath the ground, much like how the Pax live in Genesis 2. The surface is said to be preserved and is mostly going back to nature. You can even see this in the motion picture itself. The matte paintings of San Francisco are incredibly green and the buildings are sparse. We should mention that that's the original cut of the motion picture, not the remastered, which just puts city everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I, I too think of this as a prequel to the original series and done in a much more interesting way than Enterprise, which just set Starfleet 100 years prior with not very much changes. Here we get to see how the world of the original series and a perfect Earth came to be how humanity clawed its way out of a nuclear holocaust. And in a way, this is Star Trek without the star part. This pilot hints at other remnants of humans and mutants, which could be like aliens in Star Trek. It's strange new worlds in one world. We even get the setup for an Angel One episode where Amazon women dominate the weaker males. Yes, and the sub-shuttle is definitely the Enterprise. It's a way of taking them... Yes. across the earth to all these strange places that they'll have to deal with. Yes. As far as the influences on Next Generation, Genesis 2 sets up the limited nuclear exchange that Encounter of Farpoint establishes as canon. The stim device that the Terranians use is said to be an ancient method of controlling troops, which is a lot like the narcotics in Farpoint's 21st century courtroom sequence. But the biggest influence on Trek is the packs themselves, I think. You were talking about how they lead to the perfect Earth. They're completely egalitarian pacifists who walk around in unisex outfits. They're very much like the improved humanity we're meant to marvel at in the first two seasons of Next Gen. They're an obvious starting point for the new human concept that Gene was pushing 
and a prototype for the United Earth and the Federation. Yeah, and there's a lot of Trek in this pilot. It's a little heavy-handed with its allegory, Terranian equal tyrants, and things like the Pax characters telling Hunt that people of his time were ruled by their lust. Animal lust caused our civilization to fall. Yes, the Pax, just like Picard, are constantly reminding us about how flawed 20th century human beings are. Unfortunately, between all these great ideas, there is a lot of silliness. Uh, in the 70s, Gene was really starting to express his views on sex, unfortunately. And Genesis 2 can be extremely horny in a very juvenile way. One of the more ridiculous concepts is that Hunt's hibernation can be reversed through sexual desire. This becomes an issue when the packs don't have the drugs to wake him up, but seeing Marriott Hartley's blonde locks are able to rouse him. Hartley, of course, was Zarabeth in the original series episode Tomorrow's Yesterday. Throughout the film, Hunt is influenced by both the Pax and the Tyranians to help them with his 20th century science knowledge. Initially, Hunt joins the Tyranians simply because he can't stand how cold and sexless the Pax are. And Hartley, as a half-Tyranian, half-human named Lyra Ah, disrobes to show him her twin belly buttons of freedom. In fact, a lot of the film is Hunt sexually harassing a Pax member named Harper Smythe to really no avail. Yeah, I, I don't know whether to be jealous or annoyed that the final line of the pilot is Hunt hitting on Harper Smith and saying, I bet you have a great pancreas. Yes, which harkens back to an earlier thing where she says to him, uh, you know, you're interested in my body. Do you want to know what the shape of my pancreas is? Like, they're that uninterested in sex that, like, whatever sexual organs one possesses is no different from any internal organ. They just don't get turned on. But the man from the past, the savage, will make them all horny again. As we see yes. with Lara Ah, she starts off as this unemotional warrior who's turned on by the savage from the past. Man, did Roddenberry have a thing for emotionally distant women who lust over his leading men. Number one in her fantasies about Pike, Laura A. and her twin belly buttons being amored with Dylan Hunt's mustache. I mean, this pilot just oozes Roddenberry's sensibilities. This is basically the writer's thinly disguised fetish. Yes, definitely. <laughs> And when you look at the whole pain and delight thing that this device called the stem causes in people, I mean, if we keep talking about Roddenberry's work, we're going to have to talk about how he's definitely into S&M. There's oh, no doubt about yes. it. Oh, yes. And dominant women. Yeah. But that is a discussion for another day. Tune in to find <laughs> out more. I find Hunt is cut from like the same cloth as Roddenberry's typical protagonist. William T. Rice in The Lieutenant, Christopher Pike, James T. Kirk, William T. Riker. But yeah, but I think what makes this the most run berry is that underlying eroticism. Hunt doesn't mind being served by a bevy of male and female slaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Turanian men show just as much, if not more, skin than the women. Yes. And that's the William Ware Tice theory of, of eroticism, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can 
complain about the sexism of the original series, but when it came down to objectification, in that and every single one of Roddenberry's properties, the men are always showing as much skin as the women yes. are. Kirk always walked around with his shirt off. You know, the Troyans and their glittering battle shorts. <laughs> Stop guessing my pride outfit. <laughs> Hunt is definitely a Roddenberry hero, but I think that he's a different hero than Kirk or Picard because Kirk was a self-admitted brute. But like Picard, he always had the answers. And even Spock had a hard time convincing him of anything otherwise. But Hunt is constantly learning and he's open to what this new world has to offer him. So it's interesting to note that the mutant Tyranians are all blonde, while the Pax are a very multi-ethnic group headed by Percy Rodriguez, who was Commodore Stone in the original series episode Court Martial. However, some of the racial politics of the film are iffy at best. The Pax may be a rainbow coalition, but they are a homo sapien-only club. They talk about Lyra I's Tyranian side as a liability because those genetics make her prone to being a lying liar somehow. It's a really regressive take on a biracial person, even worse than Spock, because at least with Spock, he was usually just torn between cultural divides. With Tyranians, their faults are clearly seen as biological. They think they're much better than everyone else. They do. They do. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a fault. It is. It is. It's, it's not as egalitarian a society as they would have you led to believe. I think that would have been an interesting argument for... Lara A to actually make within the plot of the episode to hunt to try to convince him to join them. Instead, it's like she just lies. Oh, there are no children here. They do this instead and all that stuff that she does in the heavy exposition part of the film. Yeah, she uh, basically fulfills everything that the packs think of her. Yeah. I think the other problem in this is, is we're beginning to see sort of the beginnings of where Roddenberry isn't making his lead men as active as Kirk was in the story, because Hunt's allegiances aren't clear in the beginning. You don't know what he wants out of anything, except maybe to snog, which is very Roddenberry. And I just feel it's, it's, it's very exposition heavy in the first hour Yes, we're establishing the world and the rules, but I'd rather learn those not through expiratory dialogue, but from Hunt experiencing it for himself and figuring things out as we went along. It takes an hour to get into the actual plot of the episode, and that's just because so much world building is done through long-winded scenes. And we miss out on showing Hunt make a final choice to save the packs from the Terranians. All of that stuff is done off screen and then summarized i disagree a little bit that hunt doesn't have any clear motivations i think initially his motivations yes are just how am i going to be comfortable here i'm trapped in this place i don't know where i am and i just want to be comfortable and i really do think that even during the sort of sex nymph mustache trimming he's questioning why do you have slaves here and Lara Ah has to sort of convince him by asking one of the slaves, you know, you're happy, right? And she's like, yeah, I would have been out in the cold somewhere if I wasn't here feeding you grapes. And he continues to sort of have a problem with the slave aspect. And when it comes time for him to escape with the packs, you know, the packs are choosing between 
are they going to grab this guy and go or are they going to foment a slave rebellion? And Dylan is clearly on the side of let's topple this society. Let's get the weapons and give them to the slaves so that they can get out of here. There's a lot of, I think, self-sacrifice and, and moralizing on his part. Yeah, I guess for me, I just wanted to be shown more. And I don't think I, I feel like things were shown as much. And maybe I had to rewatch those scenes, but it just felt like Hunt was given scenes where he is deciding or figuring out or moving things along. He just seems very at the whim of the other characters for a while. But I did like that he led us uh, a slave revolt. I do like when they paddle prong all the Turanians. Yes. That's a great scene. <laughs> it is. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that that Hunt does a lot of confusing flip-flopping in allegiances, uh, making it hard to tell whose side he's on until the very end. But the ending to me is everything. It's the strongest part, and it's what makes this show, I think, worthy. Hunt sets off a nuclear warhead that the Turanians were planning to use against the Pax, and he saves their city and everybody in it. But when he gets back to the Pax... Percy Rodriguez is not having it because what he's done by setting off this nuke is kill an unknown number of Tyranians. He doesn't blow up the actual city of Tyrania, but it's clear that he's killed everybody who was in that missile silo. The packs make it clear that they don't kill and Hunt doesn't get it. He gets really pissy about it. That is until the shockwave from the explosion hits and he sees a couple of Pax kids scared out of their wits by it. And you can see right there that he knows that he's awoken this old evil that these people are trying to put behind them. And it works. Like, I'm a little bit choked up thinking about it right now. This is what I mean by Hunt being a learning hero, not somebody who has all the answers already in place. Yeah, I can see that. I, he's an unarrived hero. He has an arc to go. So I can see that. It sets up a nice uh, series that we never got. Yeah. Unlike Pike, who is being dragged into action and is a unfinished hero in that respect, Hunt is fully there. He's ready for action. He just needs to learn how to tame himself. And he needs to learn how to exist in this world. And at the end, he shows that he's willing. Yeah, that's a, and that's a very Roddenberry ending. Yes. We shall not kill today. Or ever. Frankly, as silly and messy as this film could get, I much rather watch Roddenberry's poorly written optimism than anybody else's well-written cynicism. Most weeks we like to cap off by telling you what we're enjoying unabashedly. We call it fanning. What are you fanning out over this week, Ryan? This week, I'm fanning over the new Roddenberry Archive website that showcases all the fictional spacecraft named Enterprise and their various bridges. This is part of Otoy's efforts to create an interactive digital archive of Roddenberry's documents, files, and shows. Here we get the work of our friend Donnie Ursega, who spent years working on digital recreations of the Enterprise Bridge and other sets, and also the work of our other friend, Fideo de Oria, both alums of the Trek VBS, just like us. But it's not just the bridges we've seen time and time again. 
It's also the bridges we never got to see, like the Ken Adams Planet of the Titans two-level expansive bridge. And if you want to see how the Planet of the Titans Enterprise interiors might have looked, watch Moonraker. The space station sets were also designed by Ken Adams and has a similar open-air design aesthetic as his Planet of the Titans designs. Then there's the bridge of Star Trek II, not the movie, the 70s series, what's commonly called now as Phase Two, which would not have been the actual title of the show. That bridge, like many of the Star Trek II sets, went unfinished and were later refurbished for the motion picture. And again, pressed into service for TNG and Voyager. But here in this unrealized Mike Minor design, you can see the 70s design aesthetic in full force. Bright white, a captain's love seat, and lots of doodad plantons. And there's even the XCV-330 ringship Enterprise, which they've put before the NX-01. The ringship is one of my favorite unrealized designs. And they even use Matt Jeffrey's uh, bridge designs for another abandoned Roddenberry project, which would have featured the ringship called Starship. Uh, you can check it out at roddenberry.x.io. And what are you fanning over, Mark? This week, like most weeks, actually, I'm fanning out over a collection of podcasts that I like to call the Michael Hobbs Cinematic Universe. Hobbs is a former writer for the Huffington Post and one of the few journalists that I trust to parse a lot of the hysteria the major news outlets often serve us. Hobbs's first podcast was called You're Wrong About, where he and writer Sarah Marshall took a second look at a number of tabloid scandals from the 90s. It sounds trashy, but he and Marshall really dive deep into how the narratives surrounding stories like Tanya Harding, Lorena Bobbitt, and Amy Fisher show how the media of the time shaped those stories through a lens of misogyny, capitalism, and moral panic. Marshall still runs You're Wrong About, but Hobbs has moved on to two other podcasts. One is Maintenance Phase, which he co-hosts with Aubrey Gordon, which mostly refutes diets and common health claims. His second latest one is called If Books Could Kill, which reexamines shoddy research-based books like Freakonomics, The End of History, and Nudges that have had a profound and negative impact not just on the zeitgeist, but on government policy. Hobbes hosts If Books Could Kill with Peter Shamshiri, who also hosts the podcast 5 to 4 with Rhiannon Hammam and Michael Liroff, which looks at how the Supreme Court has always been an ideological institution, one case at a time. These podcasts are all, I think, important for contextualizing the political and mass media landscape we're living in, and they've really influenced how I read news stories now and divine who the real victim is in them. Hobbes, for instance, has been a major force in debunking the panic surrounding trans health care, especially when kids are involved, and showing how major left-leaning papers have contributed to the insane measures that have popped up to outlaw it. All of these podcasts are available wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. That's it for this week. I'm Ryan Little, a jerk. And I'm Mark Farinas, also a jerk. 
Our Music You Wish Was Your theme song is by Fluffy. You can find all her work at SockPuppet.us. And you can find me at Trek Comic on Twitter. And I'm at Ryan T. Riddle on Twitter. The dog you hear in the background is Reggie. Did you hear something you agreed with or disagreed with? Or just want to give a shout out? You can find the podcast on Twitter too, at Shipful of Jerks. You don't want us to start doing an Enterprise retro review. <laughs> I, I, I have seen four hours of Enterprise, and I think that's probably about three and a half hours too many. <laughs>